Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. That has so blessed this church. They have given their time. They have given their finances. They have given the resources of their life. And they have put in uh, numerous sacrifices so that River Valley Community Church can be a church that tries to make a difference in the lives of people. Lord, we don't sit here as perfect and we don't sit here as having every answer. But Lord, help us just to do what you've called us to do. Be faithful in that. So Lord, we pray this offering will help build the kingdom. We pray that as every family gives their tithe, as they surrender what belongs to you, we pray your blessing would be upon their life. We pray, God, that as every giver gives offering and sows into the kingdom, that, Father, you will bless that and put your hand on it. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you give this morning. Come on, sing this with us. Hallelujah. Bless the name of the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, team. You all did a great job this morning. Adam, we're glad you're home. Glad you and Kelsey are home, back with us. And praise God. And uh, y'all, if if I seem like I got a smile on my face this morning, and me and my wife... Uh, it's good to have our middle daughter home from Oral Roberts University. She's visiting. We haven't seen her in 10 months. And so Savannah, stand up, and, and uh, I'm going to recognize you, let people see you. And uh, so she came in late last night and, as always, uh, uh, ready to talk. And uh, so, <laughs> but it's good to have her home, and she's doing a great job. I'm so proud of her uh, in her studies and what God is using her for and. uh how many of you are blessed with good children? How many are thankful for your children? God is good, and so we can be thankful for our children, and we are so blessed. And uh, so, But I'm going to have her share a little bit maybe this week, maybe on Thursday night a little bit. She hadn't had an opportunity to share. She just went to Malawi this past summer, and I know she had a, uh, an incredible time there. She led a team there, and uh, just share with you what's going on in her life. And uh, uh, It's amazing how you can watch them grow spiritually. And, uh, and just be so encouraged by what you see in their life. And so we're thankful that she's home and I get to hang out with her for a couple days before she'll take off and run and be with a bunch of friends for the rest of the week. So praise God. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to look at a few verses of Scripture this morning. And um, 
You know, the last few weeks we've been in a series called uh, a Freedom Series. And this is the fifth sermon that I'm preaching on this series and and the Freedom Series. Uh, The last time we were together, we talked about the overflow of the heart. And we talked about the four blockages of the heart uh, that we talked about. And uh, those who live in freedom, uh, their heart is free from the pollutants that keep them from living free. And so uh, we talked a little bit about heart blockage the last time we were together. But I want to read a few verses of Scripture. And uh, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses there. And then we're going to go over to 2 Corinthians and uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to read a verse there. I want to talk this morning, I want to talk a little bit about a life that is surrendered. What is a life that is surrendered? Uh, A life, you can only surrender your life if you are truly living in freedom. And so living in freedom gives you the ability to say yes to God and to surrender your life. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is in Christ Jesus. Now if everyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, or precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward, the Scripture says. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as though through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which which temple are you? Now turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. I want to read a passage here. Beginning in verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, that the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust, trust are well known in your conscience. Now, these are two powerful verses of Scripture. One of the things that is not preached much in the body of Christ or that we don't see preached much anymore is the fact that one day there is going to be a Bema seat. There's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will have to give an account for the work that we have done on this earth. All of us will have to give an account of our Christian life, our Christian walk. We will all stand before God and give an account for how we have responded to the gospel and how we have served him. Now, the last couple of weeks, we talked about uh, being freedom and a heart flow, how the, the role that our heart plays in the freedom of our life. And uh, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 13, For, for you, brethren, uh, have been called to liberty. Only do not use the liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is that we have been given freedom in Christ Jesus. That we are to not take that liberty in the flesh and use it for occasion to uh, satisfy the flesh. But the liberty that we have been given, God has given it to us that we may serve Him and to be serving His kingdom. And so we talked about that the heart is the wellspring of life. That out of the heart comes the issues of life. And so we uh, many uh, aren't free because we have heart trouble. And so we addressed four issues of the heart. We talked about the selfish ambition was one. We talked about bitterness and rejection and evil thought. They were the four main blockages of the heart that keep us from being free. And so this week and the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about each of those heart, those blockages individually. Now when we ended our service, we prayed this prayer. We said, Holy Spirit, show me uh, any area of my life That needs to be free. We prayed and asked the Holy Spirit and invited Him 
to change us, that he would change us. We invited the Holy Spirit to fill us. And so these next few weeks, we want the Holy Spirit to show us, to change us, and to fill us, and to show us what areas of our life in which we may need to know in which God can use in order to bring change into our lives. Now, spiritual, in other words, we're going to be doing a spiritual heart cath. Whatever God has freed you from, the Holy Spirit will fill you up. In the book of James chapter 3, we use that passage of Scripture as a place of reference. book of James chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 says, but if, but if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and selfish seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. In other words, what James is telling us this morning, as we begin to talk about this morning about surrender, we have to understand that the heart blockage that keeps us from surrender is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition will keep the flow of God from flowing through your life. It'll keep you from being free to be used of God. Now, what is selfish ambition? What does it mean? What does it say? Well, Paul tells us, or James tells us there in the book of James, we know it, what it says is, selfish ambitions is saying that I am in control of my life. That God, you don't call the shots, but I call the shots. We can be Christians, but still not let God call the shots in our life. Y'all with me this morning? I mean, we can still tell God I'm going to remain in control of my life. In other words, there's going to be a part of the world that you don't have, my world, that you don't have access to. I'll give you some of me, God, but I'm not going to give you all of me. In other words, we restrict the places in which God is allowed. We restrict the areas in which God can come and work in our life. In other words, God, I can give you this part of my life, but not this area of my life. The Bible tells us that in James, that selfish ambition, uh, it says that where there is selfish ambition, there is confusion, there is disorder. You know what that means? It means that there is uh, instability and disruption. In other words, where there is selfish ambition in our life, there will always be instability and disruption in our life. In other words, when you tell God you're going to call the shots, and that God doesn't have full control of your life, you will find there will be areas of instability and disruption in your life. There will be areas of your life that will be, the Bible said, that there will be disorder and confusion will there. And the Bible says that it's opportunity for every evil practice to come about. In other words, those who are not free, who live under selfish ambition in their life, they are prone to the evil practices. In other words, they're prone to fall into practices or fall into those things which can cause disturbance and instability and selfishness and disruption and disorder and confusion in their life. Now, how many this morning want to live a self-ambitious life? Or how many want to live under Christ this morning? Under Jesus, under God rule, God has my heart this morning. In other words, I'm unblocking the heart blockage of selfish ambition in my life this morning. And it's interesting because what it is, selfish ambition seeks one's own will is what it does. It seeks one's own will. It desires, listen, here, it's amazing because what happens is some of the things that flow out of selfish ambition are things like jealousy. And comparison, and we can and comparisonness. In other words, people who live in selfish ambition believe that they always have to compare themselves with somebody else to measure their spiritual life. In other words, they feel that they always have to live up to somebody else, or they always got to look at somebody else's life in order to compare their life to measure whether or not their life is valuable or not. I'm here to tell you the only person we need to look to this morning is Christ Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. 
The Bible says it's not wise for man to compare himself with man. In other words, we have to please one this morning. And what happens with selfish ambition is, is that there is a fruit that comes out of selfish ambition that says that I want God's best without the process. Y'all help me this morning. In other words, it says, I want the blessing of God, but I don't want to pay the spiritual price to get to the place where God's blessing can flow in my life. And people want everything that God offers, and they want the best that God offers, but they're unwilling to pay the spiritual price to position themselves to receive God's best. And so selfish ambition is saying, I want what God has for me, but I don't want to do the things that it takes in order for God to do in my life what I desire Him to do. It boils down to one word, a life of surrender. The answer to selfish ambition is a life of surrender. It's a life of surrendering your will, surrendering your desires, finding the will of God for your life and the purpose of your life and walking therein what God has designed for you. Now, what God has designed for you may not be what he's designed for somebody else. And the pace at which God works in you may not be the pace at what he works in someone else. But I'm here to tell you, God will always finish his work if you will let him finish his work. He is faithful to complete in you that good work which he started from the beginning. He will be faithful to complete until the day of his coming or the end of the age. In other words, God has a great desire, but it takes surrender in our life. Now, when we think of the word surrender, many times we think of the word, uh, this picture in our mind of like a, a ship that surrenders and the white flag waves. Our soldiers that come out in a battle and put their hands up as a sign of surrender. Oftentimes we associate it with defeat. Often we associate surrender as a sign of defeat in our life or a sign of weakness in our life. But when it comes to the life in Christ, the act of giving up control to Him is actually the beginning of freedom. The day we say, God, you have full control, I surrender, is the day that God begins to put freedom in your life. A life of surrender requires trust, and that trust is developed, all trust is developed through relationship. All trust is developed through relationship. Is that not right? How many know we could, if we surrender, surrender's about trust, surrender's about trusting God, putting your hands in God's hands. Believing that God can do better with your life than what you can do with your life by yourself. Are y'all here this morning? Because we know that a surrendered life is a life that we have put trust in God and put trust in Christ and in that we know He will complete the work that He wanted to do. Now we know trust is earned until you have an understanding of, uh, of someone's character. It is impossible to trust them or her, without something of value. In other words, trust comes through relationship. Trust, surrender comes, and, tr and trust comes through relationship. That's why sometimes if someone, if your trust has been violated and someone has caused you pain, if you uh, don't allow God to heal that, it becomes a heart blockage. In other words, if someone has violated your trust, over the course of your life, they have caused pain in your life, or they've caused pain, what happens is, is that if you don't allow God to heal that, then that becomes a heart blockage in your life. You're unable to trust. You're unable to, to have meaningful and deep relationships. Actually, it, it's even, it even goes into this. Here's how it's a heart blockage to our life. The manifestation of that will be projecting uh, and uh, on anyone who is representative of the source of that pain. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Listen to me. If someone has violated your trust and you can no longer trust certain people, sometimes we will project onto a representative of that type of person with every relationship. So in other words, if, if you have had a father figure 
that has violated your trust, then you will see every father, you will have a hard time trusting every father figure. If an authority figure has violated your trust, you will struggle with authority all your life. If an ex-spouse has violated you or has treated you harshly or badly and you have not allowed God to bring healing to that wound, every person that represents that individual, you will struggle with trusting. Why? Because you have a heart blockage. It's a blockage that only God can heal. And the fruit of it is this. The fruit of it is, let, let me just give you some symptoms of the heart blockage of someone who has been, uh, who has lost trust or relationship. One is, is that they, 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 they become hypercritical of others. Y'all hearing me this morning. I don't know if I got the right crowd or not. Maybe I need to get another message and preach. Wounded people become hypercritical because they've never allowed God to bring healing to their hearts. So they become critical of the figures that have wounded them. If you're a man, you've been wounded by a wife or a spouse, you'll be critical of women. See, y'all ain't hearing me this morning. I, I just, it's the same way. If a man has wounded you, a husband, an ex-spouse has wounded you and you've not been healed from it, you will look at every husband, you will criticize every spouse, everybody else's spouse, everybody else's wife, everybody, why? Because there's a heart blockage and you've not allowed God to heal you so you cannot trust people in those areas. It's the same way if you feel God has wounded you or hurt you or you've become offended at God because you've not gotten what you have desired from God. You become wounded toward God. You become angry towards God. You become uh, uh, bitter towards God. In other words, so in that bitterness, you no longer trust him, but you go your own way. I'm telling you, there are Christians that are sitting in churches every week that are wounded and they feel that God is the one that has wounded them. I wish I had some help. I thought I was in a Pentecostal church. So, yeah. So, so they're hypercritical. Two, they don't have deep, meaningful relationships. In other words, they don't have real, close, deep relationships. And the reason why is they can never get close because they want to protect their heart. They build a wall around their heart. And they never let nobody in. They never let even the good people in. People that want to bless them and touch them and, and, and make a difference in their life. They become so wounded that they, they come to the place where they, they deep, meaningful relationships are not there because they will not let them happen. Their circle of friends are very small. Number three, they live in places of isolation. In other words, they intentionally stay away from people. They intentionally stay away from those that could bring blessing to their life. They live lives of isolation. Now, I don't know this morning. I'm just telling you. I feel like a lot of freedom could be released if people would allow God just to heal the wound of their hearts this morning and learn that they can trust God. They can put their trust in God. They can trust Him because He deserves to be trusted this morning. But in order to surrender our lives to God, we must believe that he is good and he is worthy of our trust. Not just salvation, but also everyday affairs of our life. That's easier said than done. Due to doubt, disappointment, past experiences. In other words, the heart can be weary, the heart can be hardened. But I'm telling you this morning, Jesus has earned our trust. He has earned our trust. He has the ability to heal every wound. He has the ability to be closer to you. And what happens is you struggle with your relationship with God because what you've allowed is a heart blockage in the natural. And you have a hard time with relationship with God because your because uh, uh, horizontal relationships are not free. <laughs> and so we struggle. We struggle with surrender. We struggle with surrender. The root of surrender is that we struggle with surrender. 
And I'm here to tell you to surrender the areas of our life. In other words, when we surrender areas of our life to him, he will partner with us on this journey we call life. And he will escort us to our life's destination. Escort us to the place that he wants us to be. Now I said all of that to say this. The areas of surrender that we all have to deal with come in three parts. One is is that they come in the areas of of things. Our worship. You know, you're created to worship. Men's created to worship. What did God tell the children of Israel in Exodus 20? God told them not to have any graven image before him. Not to worship anything but him. And how many know sometimes things, possessions, things that we have can become first in our life instead of God? And there's the area of relationships. In other words, you can have relationships that come before God. You can have relationships that, that, that things that you seek before you seek God. Some people, I've seen people seek ministry before they seek God. They'll seek a wife or a spouse or be obsessed with the attention of others or they will uh, want the approval of others and they will put relationships before the relationship with God. Relationships are powerful, but we know this, that God holds our destiny, that our plans and our goals, our pleasures, our ambition, all of those things should be put into the hands of God. And then our own lives. We have to surrender our own lives. We have to give God our things. We have to give God our relationships. And we have to give God our lives. But I like what Paul said in Timothy 4.8. And this is where I'm going to take you this morning. What I want you to see this morning is, is that uh, when we have a surrendered life, it affects the way we behave. And the way we behave determines how we respond to the things of God. But I'm here to tell you, you can be saved and not have a victorious life. You can be saved and not be surrendered to the things of God. You can be saved and never get to the destiny God has called you to. You can be saved and still put things before God. And God it will always be a roadblock for you. You will always look uh, uh, toward selfish things to satisfy yourself instead of pleasing God. But listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. What is Paul saying? Paul said, the life I live now is a surrendered life. Why am I living a surrendered life? Because I know there is a day when I will stand before God and there is a crown of righteousness that he has laid up for me that he will lay upon my head and not only me but all of those who have loved his appearing. You know what appearing is? It's not future tense, it's present tense. It means all of those who has loved his appearing. When was his appearing? When he walked on the face of the earth and lived sinless, healed, blinded eyes. When he raised the lame, he lived sinless, he died on the cross, his blood was shed, and the tomb was empty. That was his appearing. Paul said all those who love his first coming will be those who will live for him. A surrendered life, there is a reward for those who want to walk a surrendered life. Huh? Now turn with me. I'm going to show you how this plays out in Genesis chapter 49. This is one of my famous chapters in the Bible. And I'm going to show you the consequences of an unsurrendered life and the benefits of a surrendered life. And I'm here to tell you that you have a choice this morning whether to live surrendered or whether to live your own way. You have a choice either to do it the way God wants you to do it or to do it your way. God never violates your will. He'll never force you to do anything. That's why worship is a choice. That's why coming to Christ is a choice. That's why you being here every Sunday, sometimes we have to make choices in our life that move us forward in the kingdom of God. And then here this chapter is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. One day we all will stand before God. I'm here to tell you, we don't talk enough about the Bema seat. 
We don't talk enough about the day when Christians have to stand and give an account for their life and how they have lived. The things we've said, the idle words, our behavior, how we've treated others, the things we've said, the things we've done, the places we've engaged in, the things we've put before God, the relationships we've put before God. But the question is, is your life surrendered this morning? Because one day there'll be a, a judgment seat when we stand before God. And will we be like Paul who stands and says that I have run the race. I have been a good soldier and kept the faith. I have been a, a, a good uh, runner and I have run my race. I have been a good prophet and I have, I have kept the faith, as Paul said, ready to be offered to God. Finish the course. Are you going to finish your course strong? Are you going to finish your course in the will of God in a life that is surrendered? Because the truth is, until the church learns to be surrendered, the world outside will never be free. And until we're free, and until we're surrendered, them out there will never owe the understanding of what it's like to be free. Here in the book of Genesis chapter 49, you begin to see this interesting chapter. Matter of fact, in this chapter we see Jacob. And uh, this is the great scene that is here. We're going to look at a few passages of scriptures here, but let me set this up for you. Jacob is 147 years old. He's lying on his deathbed. Joseph is 56 and Benjamin is 39. For the past 17 years, Jacob has spent uh, his time in the land of Egypt. But he's not lost that pilgrim's character that he's had. He spent 23 years in Egypt, or 23 years in Canaan, and 17 years here in Egypt. The Bible says in verse 1, it says this, it says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear your, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. The Bible says that, that Jacob on his deathbed, he gathered uh, at his uh, place there where in Joseph's palace in his latter years, he gathered there in his home, and the scene is, could you imagine this? Just picture Jacob laying on his deathbed. All around him, the servants are scurrying. All those that are part of the household, the servants, the slaves, all the physicians are there tending to Jacob. Joseph goes out and calls his brother and says, Dad is about ready to die. We all have been summoned to come. They all come into the room. They come into that room and all the servants are escorted out and the only ones that are left in the room is Jacob and his sons. They all come into that room, they gather around, and all of a sudden, as the sun is going down in that scorching, hot Egyptian world, all of a sudden, the stare of Jacob begins to go around the room at his boys, and there's this feeling of awkwardness that comes into the room. Now, I want you to picture this. Here's Jacob on his deathbed. All of his sons have come in from here and there. And all of a sudden, there's an awkwardness in the room as Jacob is lying there and they, they, are, they are waiting to hear with what their father is about to say. Jacob's eyes have glazed over with the fact that he will be crossing another river very soon. The boys stare at the rugged face of the old man, a noble face that it is. And if you could study it carefully, you could read the story of Jacob's life on his face. The passion of his early life marks his countenance and the craftiness and the cunningness left on the mark on his face. In his latter years, his nobility and spirituality of his latter years of his life can also be seen etched in his face as the boys gather around that room. The boys gaze upon him and perhaps they contrast the luxurious palace and the room in which they lie with now to the humble tent that Jacob had spent so many years under. Something had to happen. But something's happened to Jacob. By the time he crossed from Canaan into Egypt, when he got to Egypt, he could have 
got concessions from Joseph and could have cornered the cattle market as Jacob had always done and lived in a palatial mansion just like Jacob, but that's not what he did. At one time, he would, have, he would have been the driving, that would have been the driving force of his life, but no more. The reason was is that after he had wrestled with the angel of God, he was broken. And then God blessed him. And although there were occasions when he stumbled there, at, from that point on, he walked with God. The death of Rachel said it settled it all for him. After he watched her slip away toward Jordan, he too began to turn his eyes toward heaven. As the boys stood there staring at their father, they could scarcely trace the breathing as he lied on that bed. I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital room of someone who is in their last days. I don't know if you sat in the room with someone who family was gathered around and they were just waiting for the passing. I've been in rooms that have been very awkward where there's such quietness as the loved one would lay there and you could trace their breathing as they would breathe up and down. You know, any moment they could slip away. Any moment they could be gone. And family would sit for hours and trace that breathing knowing that soon they'd be crossing over. As these boys sat there gathered around their father's bed, suddenly there was a burst of life that came into Jacob. All of a sudden, he raises himself up. He grabs his staff. He leans on his staff. He throws back the hampering covers that had kept him laying down. He sits on the side of his bed, and he begins to look around the room at each one of these boys. It was like life had suddenly came into him and it seemed that life had suddenly came back and as his eyes looked around the room, it was like the boys were looking into a man who had a light from another world staring at them. I love this passage because here we see as Jacob looks around the room, he began to look at these boys one by one, Reuben and Levi and Simeon. He began to look at Judah and he looked at each one of these boys and suddenly there was a different atmosphere that changed in the room. And from one of watching their father die to one that they, they, to, to the one that they thought that maybe they were going to hear these last inaculate words of a dying man. But what they realized is, is that these boys had been brought into the judgment seat of Jacob. You say, well... When we look at it, these boys have done good things. Some of them have done bad things. They've made their decisions. They've done what they have done. They said what they would say, have said. They've done their deeds. And now they were going to answer to the Father for their life. Because now they entered into a room where Jacob was now going to bestow upon them their inheritance. And their inheritance was not based on their position in the family, uh, but their inheritance was based on their performance in the family. And so these boys had gathered. They all had gathered in this room. None of them would leave the same. None of them would leave that room the very same, the way that they came in. And what happened at the judgment seat of Jacob to decide the position of these boys throughout the Old Testament history and how they would rule and what they would inherit, what he would say to them and their position in the coming kingdom that was coming, if you studied it through, you will see that everything that Jacob says to these boys happened in their life in the going forward. In other words, here's what they were being judged by. They were being judged by their performance. They were being judged by the level at which they surrendered to the will of the Father. They were being judged to the level at which they had been obedient to the instruction the Father had given them. Just as you and I one day will stand before God and we will give an account and at this judgment seat has nothing to do with whether or not they're in the family. This is not to determine whether or not they belong to the family. This is to determine their performance in the family. And someday when you and I stand before God, it's not about whether or not we're in the family. 
If you are born again, washed in the blood of Jesus, you are part of the family. But what will take place someday is not whether or not you're in the family. It's what you have done and your performance in the family. Y'all hearing what I'm saying today? They're being judged. Paul said it like this in the scriptures that I read. Paul warned the Corinthians. Corinthians, he said, all the world will be tested by fire, he said, whether whether performed in the flesh or by the Spirit. Paul said, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, therefore we persuade men. In other words, what Paul is saying, all of your works will be tested at the judgment seat of Christ, whether they are flesh or whether they are God. Now I'm telling you, for some of us, if we are surrendered to the things of God, that will be a good day. I guess the question is, this morning, what does the Holy Spirit say about your and my performance thus far in the family? As we begin to look at this, Jacob began to look around the room and he began to call each one of his sons. See, surrender affects your behavior. In turn, it'll affect your position in the coming kingdom. You say, why is it important for me to, as long as I'm saved, why, is it, why does it matter the way that I live? Because I'm here to tell you that the rewards that we receive, the position that we receive in the coming kingdom is based on how we perform our Christian lives in this world. And so Jacob arises out of his bed and first there is Reuben. He calls Reuben. He calls Reuben. Now this is the man I call who's crushed at the judgment seat. He's Jacob's eldest son. And as we look at him, we might see an uneasiness about him. There is maybe an uneasiness because he knows that he's in front of his father and there's this haunted look about him. There's this hunted look about him. There's an easiness about him, a discomfort about him. And the eye of Jacob rests upon him. And in verse 3, we see Jacob begin. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. In other words, he begins in verse 3, and he says to Reuben, thou art my firstborn. Can you see the pride welling up in Reuben as he realizes that all of a sudden now uh, he's being acculated? This surge of confidence in Reuben as he is being, as, as, as his countenance surges to this place to where all of a sudden he feels this pride. His father has extolled him. But when we begin to look at this, all he has done so far is just recognize the fact that he's the firstborn. He's just recognized the fact that Reuben is his firstborn. And what's interesting about in those days There's great privileges that are given to the firstborn. Matter of fact, the firstborn, there's a great privilege that is given, but also one who may have the title of the firstborn may not necessarily uh, get the blessing of the firstborn. But there's three great privileges for the firstborn. One, is there a material blessing? He gets a double portion of the land. Two, there's a ministerial blessing. He wears the ephod of the family. He becomes the family priest. Third, there's a messianic blessing that the line of the promise of another generation, the Messiah, would come through his seed. That is the blessing. That is the blessing of the firstborn. I could see pride just coming over and throning over Reuben. As he begins, he thinks to himself, one day I shall be called your excellency. One day the land of promise shall be called the land of Reuben. But as we begin to read, we realize he was wrong. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, and Jacob begins to look at Reuben, and he says to Reuben, he said, Reuben, you are unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. Now this is interesting. Jacob, so far all he did was talk about Reuben being the firstborn. All he did was talk about his position in the family. And then all of a sudden, Jacob now changes his tune. And he says to Reuben, he says, you know, 
You're unstable as water. He says, you, 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 you shall now excel because you have gone up to my couch. You have, you, have, you have gone up to my couch. You have defiled it. In other words, what is Jacob doing? Jacob is doing something that none of the other brothers knew. Because in Reuben's life, there was a 40-year secret. And the 40-year secret was is that Reuben had gone to one of Jacob's uh, maidservants and he violated her. And what happened was is that nobody knew what had happened. We're not even sure we know how Jacob knows that, we, that how it happened. All we know is that all of a sudden at this judgment seat, Jacob brings up something that had been hidden in Reuben's life for 40 years. He reveals something in Reuben's life that had been there that Reuben has tried to hide. Remember, this is not about position in the family, but performance in the family. He said, you're unstable as water. He said, thou shall not excel. And for 40 years, Reuben had kept this secret. You have gone up. You have defiled my house. You've gone up to my couch. In other words, what was done in secret, Jacob exposed publicly. In other words, Reuben is a picture of those who live an unsurrendered life that walk around with secret sin, who feel maybe God doesn't know it, or nobody else knows it, but God knows. And one day we will stand before God, and we know that which is hidden will be brought to light. And so Reuben, he says, you shall not excel. You shall not excel. You shall not in other words, you know, there's this release in, in secret about Reuben's life. In other words, Jacob says that you shall not prosper. Your inheritance has been endangered. You've tried to cover up sin. And he said, in other words, Reuben never did amount to anything. Reuben was literally, his tribe was sucked into the tribe of Judah, and you, you barely saw him. He never excelled. He never received the benefits, the blessing of a life. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that which was exposed, Jacob waited and waited and waited for him to come to the Lord, waited for him to come and to, to repent, waited for him to come and share his heart, waited for him to come and repent, but he never would. He never would come. Let me just tell you this. What you don't take to the mercy seat will be brought up at the judgment seat. What we don't bring to the mercy seat, what we keep hidden in our lives will be brought to the judgment seat. And so we see Reuben whose life ended up being crushed because he lost his inheritance because of secret sin. Secondly, in verse 5, he turns to Simeon and Levi. He said they were brothers of instruments of cruelty in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. In other words, Simeon and Levi were those that were condemned at the judgment seat. What happened to these boys is that they took the judgment of God into their own hands. Their sister Diana was violated by the prince of Shechem and they were brought in and Jacob had made a covenant with Shechem and all the Shechemites were going to be circumcised and come in to the kingdom. Diana was going to marry this prince who she was violated by. This covenant had been made. But Levi and Simeon could not forgive this prince. So they went down with the sword and slew and killed each one of them. They took judgment into their own hands. In other words, they took the judgment of God into their hands. They took the judge, what God was supposed to be judgment for, they took into their own hands. In other words, what they did was is they went down and they took the place of God. In other words, what they did was is they, they brought judgment upon the people that only God can judge. I believe sometimes we live in a day when Christians take the judgment of God in their own hands. They killed them with the sword. They, 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 they took the judgment of God. They played God instead of allowing God to deal with sin. 
And so what happened was is that Reuben and Simeon, the Bible says this, it says that they, that they were instruments of cruelty, that they, in slaying a man in their own self-will, they were cursed, and the Bible said they did not receive their inheritance. The Bible said that God would scatter them and divide them, and he would bring them to a place of being divided among, among the children of Israel. So we see those who were condemned at the judgment seat. Those will be those that will be crushed at the judgment seat. Those who will be condemned at the judgment seat. But I want to finish with these two. You can go down and you'll see that all through this chapter you will see God brought to light these boys' inheritance. But then Jacob comes to Judah. I don't know how familiar you are with Judah and his life and what his life represented. But when you come to Judah, Judah was one that I'm sure that when Jacob looked toward him, that he began to tremble when he would see his father's eyes come on. Why was it? Because Judah had a lot of secrets. Judah was one that lived his life in a reckless way. Matter of fact, Judah trembling, he probably said to himself, he said, what is he going to say about my marriage to that pagan woman that I married? What will he say about my fierce failure as a father? His two sons who were stricken to death for their wickedness. What will he say about my business with Tamar? What will he say about my worldliness and the carnality of my life? What will he say about my part in selling Joseph? And this is the interesting thing. If you'll notice when you read through there, Jacob says nothing about Judah's life. Matter of fact, when he read about Judah, he gives him blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. Now why would, why would Jacob do that? Here Judah had all of this indiscretion in his life. And all of a sudden, at this judgment seat, he, he's revealed and given blessing after blessing after blessing. Another word being said. And the reason is, is this, is that because Judah came and fell at the feet of Joseph. And he confessed all that he had done. He poured his heart out to Joseph, who was his a Lord who brought salvation and provided salvation to his life in a time of famine. He put all to Joseph and confessed it all to the son of the father. And the Bible says in verse 11, he washed his garments in wine and in the blood of the grapes. In other words, what he did was he brought it all to the mercy seat of God. And because he brought it to the mercy seat of God at the judgment seat of the Father, it was never brought up again. How many are thankful this morning that what you have taken to the mercy seat of God will never show up at the judgment seat? That through the blood of Jesus, there's been a provision that has been made for both you and I. The Bible says that we learn that Jesus had the ability to change when Jesus comes back in power and glory and sets up his golden empire on this planet. Why is it something to be covenant? Because James and John tells us, James tells us this, and John tells us this, that there were those that came to Jesus asking for the sit at his right and left hand in his kingdom. And Jesus said, sorry, I request denied. He said, because I can't give you that. That is earned. It's not given, but it's earned. Listen, God gives unmerited salvation, but God never gives unmerited reward. In other words, we all are given unmerited salvation, but God never gives us unmerited reward. And Joseph comes and blessing, or Jacob comes, and Judah gets blessing after blessing after blessing. Adam, would you come? I want to close with this one this morning.
finally, Joseph, Jacob comes down to Joseph. See, every prophecy that Jacob gave of Judah was fulfilled. Judah became and fulfilled all of what the Old Testament said. But then he comes to Joseph. And Joseph was one that was confident at the judgment seat. The reason he was confident was because Genesis chapter 48 comes before Genesis chapter 49. Joseph had already given his blessing over Joseph and his two sons in Genesis 48. And Joseph was confident at the judgment seat. He was confident for this reason. He was confident in the fact that he did everything that pleased the Father. His life was a life of surrender. It wasn't a life that was easy, but it was a life of surrender. There was endless blessing that was for him. The scripture talks endlessly about the blessing that was upon Joseph's life. His son received the birthrights, and through Joseph and Judah came the Messiah. His sons received a double portion. And he lived the life. He was confident at the judgment seat because everything he did from the moment he woke up to the time that he laid his head down, his desire was to please the Father. And the truth is, is that a surrendered life is a life that, like Judah, we understand that everything in our life has to be taken to the mercy seat of God. And at times in life we fail, we make mistakes, but God has provided for us today a mercy seat by which we can take our sin and our failure to the mercy seat. And when we bring it here, it's forgiven and forgotten and cast it as far as the east is from the west. But like Joseph, we can live a life that's unhindered because Joseph woke up every day doing that which pleased the Father. We should wake up every day with the desire to do that which pleases the Father. We could be like Asher. Asher was the least of the least of the least of the children of Israel. He was the son of the unwanted wife, of the unwanted bondwoman. He was the least of all the sons. But the Bible said, Jacob said, that, that the world shall eat, he shall dip his foot in oil, and all shall eat of his bread, and he shall release royal dainties. You know, Asher was one who was just faithful. He was faithful. And Jacob said, his house shall continue to yield bread. His house shall continue to be blessed. Because he thought he was a nobody. And I'm here to tell you that in the body of Christ, nobodies are somebodies. I'd rather be a nobody in the house of God than be a somebody in Congress and Senate today. Stand with me if you would. Do you know what it means to be a nobody in the family of God? It means that you are seated in Christ above principalities and powers and thrones and dominions, above every name, not only in this world, but in the world to come. It means that in the coming kingdom that you will rule with Christ, not only Galactian empires, but set with Jesus in heavenly places. That's what it means to be a nobody in the kingdom of God. Which means you are somebody in heaven. This passage of scripture I read you, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. He says, I've been a soldier 
I have fought the good fight. He says, I've been a Greek athlete. I've run my race. I've been a Hebrew prophet. I've kept the faith. He encourages Timothy to run like he ran. And I believe when Paul got to heaven, when he stood before God, I believe God said, well done, Paul. What a soldier you've been. Well done, Paul. What a race you've run. Well done, Paul. What a faith you have kept. And so the question this morning is, are you surrendered? Do we have a surrendered life? Do we have a life that, like Joseph, we every day want to please the Father? Because in the end, it's either the mercy seat or the judgment seat. With every head bowed this morning, let's talk about surrender as we close this morning. Maybe you have areas of your life that need to be surrendered. Maybe, maybe there are hard issues that you really have never dealt with. They've been a blockage. Maybe the selfish ambition of your life, the way we rid selfish ambition is that we surrender. Maybe you've wanted to do it your way, and you've said, God, I'm going to do it my way. I've been there. There's been many times in my life where I've had to make the decision whether or not I'm going to follow God or do it my way. Maybe you just need prayer this morning. Say, Pastor, I really want to surrender. But there's times I struggle. I fight it. You know, the truth is, there's a lot of folks in church that are like Reuben and Simeon and Levi. They've taken the will of God into their own hands. Maybe you're like Reuben and there's just things in your life you never take into God. Maybe there's hurt and pain you've never surrendered to the Lord. Maybe there's secret sin that you've never allowed God to have that part of your life. Maybe it's a part of your life you've never been able to really yield. Maybe it's something that only you struggle with, that maybe only you know about. Or maybe you're like Levi and Simeon. You feel like you have to break Bring the judgment of God on everything. All I know is that I want to be like Joseph. I want to wake up every day and say, God, I want to do everything that pleases you today. I'm not going to make you come down to the altar this morning. But we're going to close in a word of prayer. But if you'll say, Pastor, pray for me. I want you... To lift your hands this morning is a sign of surrender. Maybe those of you that are lifting your hands, maybe, maybe there's areas of your life that you need to learn to surrender. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want you to know this morning Jesus is the ultimate answer to your life. He's the great Savior. And if you don't know Him this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to know Him. Do you say, Pastor, I'm surrendering. Whatever God asks me to do, I'm surrendering. I'm surrendering. I know there's times there's resistance to messages like this. Father, we come before you this morning as our hands are lifted. It is our posture of surrender. Lord, may we be like Joseph. Even in the midst of the most difficult times, he was always faithful to God. He surrendered when his brothers came against him. He always wanted to please the Father. When he was in the pit, he never gave up on God. 
when he was put in prison, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he never gave up on God. In the palace, he never gave up on God. And the ultimate test of his life was when he forgave his brothers of their ultimate deeds. Because Joseph woke up every day always wanting to please the Father. All of us that have lifted our hands here this morning, I pray that you'll give them the strength to always please the Father this morning. To always do the right thing. To live a life that's surrendered. No more heart blockage. No more selfish ambition. No more disruption and confusion and disorder in my life. I will not open the door for evil thoughts or evil things. I will not use my Christian liberty as Levi and Simeon did and take the judgment of God in my own hands. But I'll be like Asher and be faithful. I'll be like Judah and bring all of my failures to the cross and to the blood to be surrendered to God. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.